0: Today, in our study in Acts, we are beginning with chapter 18. Now, it has been my contention, and those of you who have been here have probably heard this um, before, but it is my contention that God hates cities. Okay? Is hate too strong a word? Maybe, um, how about God actively dislikes cities. God actively looks askance at cities, distrusts cities. Somewhere in there is where I do believe the truth lies. According to Genesis chapter 4 the first cities came from the corrupted family line of Cain, the first murderer. Um, It's hard to say that Cain's family line went from bad to worse, uh, but Cain's family line in Genesis 5 um, that we see ends with um, Lamech, uh, the original gangster rappers I've said before, who utters these lines, uh, yo, Otta and Zilla, hear my voice. He didn't really say yo, okay, but uh, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. He was a bad guy. Um, Just another in the line of Cain. And also the first to take multiple wives against God's um, guidance, shall we say. In Genesis chapter 11, in what archaeologists believe was the very first city, that one built by Enoch or his son. And in that very first city, God destroyed the great edifice to uh, man's challenge to God, the Tower of Babel, and scattered the people from that metropolis across the face of the earth. In Genesis 19, We read that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for the great degeneracy that had engulfed those two cities. Recent discoveries point to uh, evidence that those cities melted and then were covered in salt. As the Bible says, we even see that Jesus recognized the evil that was rampant in cities. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often I would gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus was accepted as a teacher and healer in, throughout the countryside. In fact, crowds flocked to him on the shores of Galilee, on the hillsides. They came even without food, which was the reason for some of his miracles. People flocked to him in the countrysides, and he came to Jerusalem, and they killed him. You will also note that as we studied the missionary journeys of Paul, that when he was beaten and stoned or just driven out of a city, he was safe as soon as he got into the countryside. Nobody harmed him. That goes counter to thinking he could easily be outnumbered and killed in the countryside. And yet he was left alone outside of the cities. Going to our verses today at the start of 18, though the apostle Paul was not beaten, stoned, or driven out of Athens, he left the city disheartened nevertheless This second missionary journey was not going as he had planned despite his, and despite his brilliant presentation of the Christian Christian message before the Areopagus in uh, Athens, he received only a polite dismissal. A few people believed, but there was no church left. In fact, we do not know when the church began in Athens because it did not spring up organically from his preaching. Few Athenians, either Jews or Greeks, believed. And when he left Athens, as I say, no church remained behind him. Now, scholars believe that the beating he had received in Philippi still had a lingering effect on his health, that not only was he discouraged from the preaching, but he was injured. And now he's walking, Corinth was uh, 53 miles away to the southwest. Of Athens and he is sets off from Athens injured uh, perhaps a little sick Uh, some think that this is the sword uh, thorn in his side that he speaks of that he asked to be removed by the Lord but the Lord said my grace is sufficient for thee for you his travel was difficult and everything combined worked to depress his spirits Chapter 18, verses 1 through 4 today that we're covering. I'll read them through, and then we'll take them verse by verse. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So, verse 1 says that after uh, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, if you had thought that leaving Athens, the city of 3,142 pagan demonic gods, um, for... Corinth was an upgrade in spirituality, you would be mistaken. Uh, Corinth was every bit as bad as Athens was, um, and worse. Uh, If there were 10,000 pagans and 3,000 pagan gods in Athens, there were 200,000 pagans in Corinth. Indulging in even more wicked activity than Athens did. Now Corinth, the Corinth that Paul visited was a relatively recent city even though a Corinth had existed for 800 years at the time of Paul. In the 700 years before its rebuilding Corinth had been a major Greek city. Uh, In the 7th century BC, Corinth had been a center of it was a center of Greek civilization with a population of seven hundred thousand before, and some estimates run up to eight hundred thousand people before. But Corinth, uh, in one forty-six BC, Corinth had run afoul of its Roman governors. Okay, there was a revolt and uprising, and the um, Roman general Mummius leveled it and killed all its citizens. And it lay desolate for over a hundred years before Julius Caesar uh, had it rebuilt. Now, Corinth, and I've taught before, was on major uh, uh, tradeways. It was on an isthmus that connected the Aegean Sea and the uh, Mediterranean Sea. On a very small isthmus, small enough to drag boats across, uh, was where Corinth was. So it was advantageous to the Roman emperor Julius Caesar to rebuild the city. So in 44 AD it was rebuilt. Situated where it was Corinth quickly regained its commercial prosperity. It had been one of the wealthiest cities in Greece lay dormant for a hundred years but then once again It is the richest area in Italy. And it just as quickly regained its reputation for sexual immorality. As early as the 5th century BC, the phrase uh, to to Corinthianize meant in Greek slang to be sexually immoral. Uh, And even in pagan Greece, which practiced sexual immorality, they went beyond every every known uh, limit. Corinth stood out for its sexual appetite. the The temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, had one thousand temple prostitutes, and sat at the top of the a 1,900-foot high mountain right outside the town. Every evening, those 1,000 prostitutes would enter Corinth to ply their religious trade to raise money for the support of the temple. At the foot of the Acrocorinth. just down below the temple of uh, Aphrodite, was the temple of Melisertes, Uh, The god of sailors, remember this is a seaport. In fact, it had a seaport on either side of the isthmus uh, for dragging the boats across. So there were a lot of seamen, merchants. There were temples to Apollo and Asclepius, the god of healing. And other pagan shrines have been found there as well through archaeology digs in recent times. The Roman poet Horace in the first century B.C., described Corinth as undeniably a rip-roaring town. And I'm wondering, I want to see that translation, okay? I want to see what rip-roaring is in Greece. But it was a rip-roaring town where none but the tough survive, okay? One of my commentators said that it was basically the uh, Las Vegas of Greece. It was a hard place to live. Because of Corinth's relative youth and its strategic location on a major trade route, it was populated by rootless traders. Okay, People had not lived here for hundreds of years. This town had been rebuilt less than 100 years before. The people who lived there were traders and merchants moving from one area to another to make a buck. It was rootless, mobile population who would stay for a bit and move along. This rootlessness also contributed to the wide open nature of Corinth. There was no sense of family, no community to temper the appetites, commercial or sexual, of its residents. Into this city then the Apostle Paul brings his missionary endeavors. Entering Corinth weakened tired, suffering injuries from his beatings, mocked and rejected in Athens in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 uh, when he writes back to Corinth after leaving to instruct the church he says, and I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Paul was not healthy and not in a real positive state of mind right then. Verse 2 reads, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. That's verse 1, but verse 2 follows. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, I don't know if it's a literary affectation, but Luke always uses, when he deals with people, uh, the diminutive form of their name. Priscilla's real name was Prisca. And in Paul's letters, where he mentions Priscilla, Paul always calls people by their formal name. She's always known as Prisca, when Paul is speaking. Always Priscilla, when Luke is speaking Uh, Luke would call me Mike. Paul would call me Michael. Just the way it is. Here he says Paul met Aquila. A name with a a man... Oh. A name with no diminutive. So both of them call, uh, call Aquila Aquila. Now Prisca. Here's something interesting. Most of the time when when Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned, Priscilla's name comes first. This first time here, Aquila is named first. But usually, Priscilla is named first. Priscilla, Prisca, was a noble name of a Roman family. She is thought to have been of the Roman gens family, uh, Prisca, which made her higher status than Aquila who came from Pontus. Pontus and Paul were from roughly the same area in Asia Minor. This man and wife found themselves in Corinth because of a decree by the Emperor Claudius removing all the Jews from Rome. Now, I find this amusing. The late 1st century Roman historian uh, Suetonius says this about Claudius's order. Since the Jews constantly made disturbances, and most translations say riots, okay? Since the Jews constantly rioted, at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from Rome. Now, the orders, as we know, from, uh, from when that was issued, was about 49 A.D., Eight years earlier, Claudius forbade the Jews of Rome to meet together, meaning he closed the synagogues because of this ongoing trouble that they were having, these riots or disturbances, and at the instigation of Crestus, which is the Roman way of writing Christ. Now, Suetonius didn't really know who Christ was when he was writing this. He thought perhaps he was somebody in Rome at the time. But Basically, at the instigation of Crestus, or Jesus Christ, uh, the wording means that Christ was the instigating factor of the troubles in Rome. Okay, just as we've seen with Paul, everywhere he goes, with the being some of the Jews in the synagogues believe him, and the other Jews rise up. This is the instigation of Crestus that was happening in Rome at the same time. We do not know when a Roman church came to be in in Rome. uh, When a Christian church came to be in Rome. It appeared more or less organically as it did in uh, Syrian Antioch. Remember Paul goes there and finds a group of Christians. There was no evangelical outreach. There was no missionary effort between these. They suspect that as early as the first Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection that Jews who had traveled remember that the Jews if they could there were two, three important festivals they were supposed to get back to Judea for one of them was Pentecost and rich Jews would travel a great distance as far as from Rome to get back to Israel you know I'm so parochial parochial the word provincial that, you know, I think of people being planted in one place back in these days, but it was not true. The Romans had great transportation areas, they had great highways that connected all the way across their empire. And Jews would travel. In fact, we know from earlier teaching in Acts that the Jews would travel and then because it was such a stay, such a great distance that they would stay from, for instance, the Passover through Pentecost. Because why not hit two major festivals, feast days, at the same time? And it's suspected that the trouble in, in Rome started as early as the year that Christ was crucified and resurrected from people traveling and seeing what happened at the first Pentecost and bringing the news back into the synagogues in Rome and saying, hey, look what happened here. And being met with resistance. So, just as, as I said, in city in Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, in Philippi, and just about everywhere Paul evangelized, Christian Jews were attacked by the Jews who refused to believe. And, and not even Christian Jews, just the Jews who Recognized Jesus as Messiah at this point, were attacked by other Jews. By AD 49, Claudius was tired of the conflict going on in Rome. He had already closed the synagogues, but then in 49, he ordered the Jews out of Rome. Now, he could not order Roman citizens out of Rome. So, Jews who were Roman citizens could stay. That would be Priscilla or Prisca. She would have been allowed to stay, but Aquila was a native of Pontus and not a Roman citizen. So if they wanted to stay together, they were leaving Rome. This was so early in Christianity that Christian Jews were deported along with regular Jews. Okay, But here's the interesting thing. Gentile Christians weren't ordered out of Rome. They stayed. And the church grew as a Gentile church because of that, because Jews were sent out and the Christian Jews had to go with them because Romans didn't know from Jews. They were all Jews to them. But the pagan Christians, who, by the way, backing up my contention that there has never been a riot caused by Christians in biblical times that we can find, they were the victims of riots. This backs that up that the Christians Gentiles were not ordered out of Rome they were not the ones causing the problems Now eventually though for a long time the church in Rome grew as a Gentile church eventually the Roman Christians would be incorporated into the with the Hebrew Christians into one church. Paul's letter to the Romans was about how to merge these two groups to a large extent. It was saying, "We've got these two factions. How do we get together?" And we see that throughout there. Verse three says, "And he went to see them and become." Oh, and I did my own, my own <clears throat> versifying here. I combined part of one verse with another because it made no sense where they broke it. And he went to see them. That is Paul went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. Now most commentators will tell you that tent maker is a little bit misleading here. Even though that's what the word says they did a lot more than tent making. They were leather workers. Uh, Somebody pointed out that we have the word saddler saddler in English yes they might deal in, uh, uh, in saddles but they dealt in other leather goods as well this, they were leather workers because and it's called tent making because some of the tents back then were made out of leather as well it says that he was Paul was of the same trade as them now why would Paul a rabbi have a trade okay Why was he trained in leather work? You usually learn the trade that your father had. Paul was from a line of rabbis. And he was particularly highly trained. Well, it was against Jewish, I don't think law would be the right word, but tradition. For a rabbi or a scribe to make money out of teaching the Torah. They did not make their living as rabbis. They were rabbis who supported themselves with another trade. Rabbi Gamaliel III, by the way, uh, you'll notice the name. That's the grandson. I think it's a great grandson of our friend Gamaliel, uh, who saved Peter at the uh, at his Inquisition after uh, in Rome, uh, in Jerusalem. Rabbi Gamaliel III observed that. It's an excellent thing. Uh, An excellent thing is the study of the Torah combined with some secular occupation. For the labor demanded of them both puts sin out of one's mind. All study of the Torah uh, not combined with work will ultimately be futile and lead to sin. Rabbi Hillel said before them, Hillel would have been great-great-great-great-grandfather, my Mr. Great great there, Uh, Rabbi Hillel said, uh, make not of the Torah a crown wherewith to aggrandize yourself. He who makes a profit from the crown of the Torah will waste away. And this is what they felt about the teaching. The teaching was to be given away for free. And we know that Paul, from this time now, Uh, He's been being supported by churches as missionary before, but uh, in his entire stay in Corinth and other places, he will support himself and make a deal saying, I did not make money from teaching you. Well, this was a Jewish tradition as well. So Paul stayed with Aquila and Priscilla, joining them in their leather work. They would become lifelong friends. Paul called them, his fellow workers in Jesus Christ, and said, they risked their lives for me, in two of his letters. It was not just for Paul that they did this, though. Uh, They opened their homes to a number of uh, Christian missionaries, supported their work. They were two of the very most important Christians of the early church. And somebody pointed out that Aquila is the only person mentioned in the New Testament that is always mentioned with his wife. Well, I would point out that Priscilla is the only woman in the New Testament that's always used in conjunction with her husband. It's always Aquila and Priscilla. And uh, they were apparently a dynamic early Christian couple. Verse uh, 4 says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. For a city as large as 200,000 uh, people, it is apparently a fact that Corinth only had one synagogue. They did not have a large Jewish population. There, You would think that there would be a number of synagogues synagogues in a town in a city of that size but that is not the case. Evidence points to a single synagogue and however true to form um, the Sabbath found the Apostle Paul in that single synagogue every Sabbath reasoning with those in the, uh, attendance he says and trying to persuade the Jews and Greeks again as in other cities, Paul had preached in. The Jewish population was resistant to the message of Christ. The apostle would spend a year and a half in Corinth. His ministry largely devoted because of their hostility to the uh, Gentile Greeks. Eventually, disruptions from the Jews of the city would again drive him out. Uh, it's not covered in in Acts here, but he will be driven out and write back to them in the letters of uh, 1st and 2nd Corinthians to the Christians that he was forced to, Christians and the church that he was forced to leave behind. But, unlike Athens, indeed he did leave a church behind. And the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians are a testament to his ministry as well as a warning of the difficulty of merging into one church bodies of Jews and Greeks. Uh, much of the letters to the Corinthians, like the letter to the Romans, dealt with ongoing problems in that area every week. Almost, I used Paul's lecture to them on the uh, how to do the Lord's Supper. Those letters apparently didn't solve the problem. Fifty years later, Clement of Rome, early church father Clement of Rome, uh, also wrote to the Corinthians, covering much of the same territory as Paul did fifty years earlier. It was an ongoing problem in Corinth that they did not know how to temper their appetites in so immoral an area. Paul had to, you know, you will remember that Paul said, do I have to come back to you with a stick in 2 Corinthians? You know, that sort of tells you how, if I can say that Paul was frustrated, I think maybe he was a little frustrated to, to threaten coming back to them with a stick. And 50 years later for Clement of Rome to write the same letter basically again. So anyway, if my earlier contention is true that, that God hates or dislikes cities, why is it that that is where most missionary outreach takes place, both in Paul's time 2,000 years ago and today as well? Because that's where all outreach is aimed at cities. You might know who Willie Sutton was. He was a bank robber uh, who was asked at one time, why do you rob banks? And he said, that's where the money is. Well, why is evangelization done in cities? Because that's where the people are. You know, after the presidential year in 2020, did you see those maps of voting trends across the country? You would have thought by looking at it that this country was overwhelmingly conservative because the entire map was red with a little blue on each coast and, and a, a little blue dot, you know, where Chicago was or St. Louis was or where Denver was. Everything else was red. But the vast majority of this country, the rural countryside, what our so-called elites refer to as flyover country, that area that they think is populated by uh, uneducated hicks, rednecks, It was a deep, deep red compared to the blues that was there. But just as in Jesus' day, those population centers of large cities controlled the fortunes of the entire state. Jerusalem controlled Judea, Galilee. What went on there in Jerusalem is what affected the fortunes of the entire country. It's the same way today. Illinois, for instance, is entirely red except for the metropolitan area around Chicago. And because of that, Chicago controls the politics of Illinois. The same for Ohio with Columbus and Akron. Missouri with St. Louis. California with Los Angeles and San Francisco. Paul went to the cities of Asia Minor and Greece because that's where the people were. And these people, just as today, were rootless, friendless, separated from family, desperately in need of God. The countryside, then as it is today, was full of families, lifelong friendships, people who grew up as babies knowing each other, with small town values that were reinforced by common shared experience. There's a a story. It's not a story. It was well seen on both sides in the Civil War that men marched to certain death knowing they were going to die and wrote those letters because they couldn't let the men from their town standing next to them down. They would rather die than to let their fellow townspeople down because the towns signed up as battalions. Entire towns would be wiped out, but the men would go to their death so that they would not let their people down. Well, this doesn't happen in cities. The friendships aren't there. The family connections aren't there. The lifestyle isn't there. Cities foster the anonymity that many people prefer. Anonymity that provides cover for the darker impulses of man. In Corinth, people could get away with the immorality and the business practices of cheating people because they were anonymous. They didn't have family. They There was nobody that they had to report to. They didn't have friends in the area. They didn't have a reputation to uphold. They would make their money or do whatever evil deed they're going to do, and then they would move along. You see, this is why Paul is in Corinth. God is conservative, and you might say, oh, don't say that, but he is. His values and God is not progressive. His values and intent changing with the current times. Hebrews 13.8 states that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is nothing more conservative than that. God is conservative. He doesn't change. What he said 4,000 years ago applies today. It didn't grow with, with the changing attitudes of man during this time. The story in Genesis of the Tower of Babel illustrates perfectly man's city mindset. The city of man can do anything, even build a tower to heaven to make a name for themselves, which is what it was about. Banded together, they did not need God. Together, they were their own gods. When Jesus came, as he, he said he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He came to call the Jews back from man's interpretation of God's law. Back to God's intention. Paul went to Gentile nations from their idea of gods to the one that, the true creator of all, the one God of the universe. We live in a country and time, not much less pagan than the ones Paul went to. Our cities believe they too have no need for God. You know, God has always had a blue state ministry. He's always sent his apostles, his teachers, his Messiah, to the cities that were falling away. He's always had that blue state ministry trying to call the people falling away back to him. And that's what we see with Paul. That's why we see what we see in our cities today with the outreaches of various ministries going into these areas. God is conservative, and He wants us to have His conservative values. Let's close in prayer.